Hello and welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. I'm Captain Rainway and this is my unruly crew. I'm Will Nicholas. And I'm Lindsay Cullen. Marching meta-narrative is that they're going as fast and as hard as they can, you know, back towards Federation space. No, they're not. They're poking their nose into everything. And that really annoys me, I have to say. See and hear all of our quirks and foibles as we work together as a team. Welcome to Star Trek Voyager, a theological journey. We're glad that you can join our intrepid crew in today's journey. And today's journey is very interesting. A specially outfitted warp-capable shuttlecraft piloted by Tom Paris successfully reaches warp 10, breaking the trans-warp barrier. But the side effects of breaking the barrier may not only cost the crew of Voyager their best helmsman, it leads to some very unexpected consequences. Well, fortunately, uh, we are able to get what has been dubbed as the worst episode of Voyager out of the way very early on in Season 2. So uh, I can honestly say to you, it's all better from here, folks, uh, when we look at Voyager. The reception to this episode uh, showed that uh, it got... uh, uh, only one out of five stars um, on the uh, Cinefantastic um, rating uh, and one out of five stars and defined as a total gah by Stuart Clark, reviewer of, of uh, Star Trek magazine. So um, there were lots of, um, I guess, uh, uh, continuity problems, writing problems, acting problems, makeup problems. Well, let's just face it, there were lots of problems with this episode, weren't there? Absolutely. There were lots of problems and scientific problems, you know, things that just didn't hang together. I mean, any time you're watching a science fiction show, you're having to sort of suspend disbelief. But but this this episode really made it hard to hang in there and uh, and uh, and make it to the end. Although I did notice that someone on IMDb gave it a 10 out of 10 rating and said it's a great comedy. Well, it was a great comedy. When I saw that pair of catfish-looking creatures there and they'd had young, oh, honestly, you'd have to laugh or you'd throw up. <laughs> of, of all the crew members to abduct, to take away and turn into a, 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 an axolotl friend uh, in, uh, in evolution or de-evolution, I'm not sure, um, Paris chooses the cap- captain. And so we end up with this... Uh, this sordid love affair between uh, the captain and and Tom Paris that provides us with uh, at least three offspring. Yes, but it's the yeah, captain points out it wasn't necessarily Paris's doing. You know, she says knowingly at the end that you know it might well be that the uh, female of the species made the first move. Oh, that just makes me my mind just goes into some sort of strange state that can't comprehend that. I'm sorry, I'm not dealing with this at all. I wonder if there's a special extra features section that actually details the romance uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the the movement towards uh, their uh, their uh, um, interlude together. We, we are uh, um, reaching the point of uh, spring here in Australia and uh, I do note that the lectionary takes us into Song of Songs this week. Don't um, even go there, Will. This is not the Song of Songs. It's a pair of de-evolutionised catfish doing disgraceful things. 
her slimy whiskers bounding over the marshes of the of the forest uh, are like long tendrils of love. Is that no, is that no they're not. <laughs> My love is like a salamander. <laughs> Especially between Paris and the captain, just no. Well, I mean, I think actually there, there's an interesting uh, serious point there, which is that it seems that it, it's a quite uh, deliberate move by Paris to take the captain. I mean, uh, you know, he seems, I, I suppose you could think maybe he just bumped into her in the, um, in the uh, lift and, and took her so as not to get, um, you know, uh, called out. But but I, I think he actually captured her deliberately. And I think it ties back to the earlier theme in this episode where he's talking about his desire to make good, to do something important. And so much of this is wrapped up with his uh, self-esteem and, and his issues with his father. Um, and I think he sees Janeway as an alternative authority figure that somehow he can impress. I agree that it was deliberate, but my thinking went along a different pathway. I was thinking that he was more devolved or evolved than, well, she obviously wasn't at that point. And and if you're in that um, state of a salamander, you probably go for the highest alpha female. That would be, you know, how you want to mate with the best of the species. So I was thinking more along those lines that she's top of the tree. So that's so the, the best one. genetic characteristics. Exactly. Yeah. That's the one you'd go for if you were a salamander, probably, or a catfish or an exolotl or whatever they were. <laughs> I, I did. Uh, I like that we've used the word catfish. Uh, catfishing is actually a relationships term. Um, it's when you actually pretend to be something that you're not in order to lure somebody to be in a relationship with you. I, I wondered whether or not um, the term catfishing was around in uh, the 1990s. I think it's something that's evolved with the internet um, post this period of time, but uh, it certainly was an interesting crossover there. Yes, it is a bit catfishery, but that's what but that's what I thought, that he was going for the top of the species, the best he could capture so um, he could have a best chance of producing strong, healthy offspring, I guess. Well, possibly so. I still like my um, my thought. I mean, there there was clearly a, a very very much this this father thing was was on his mind, you know. And there's one uh, one point where he he talks about you're just like him, you know. So he's comparing everyone uh, to his father for good or ill as as he goes through this. I mean, I think the other thing that struck me was uh, uh, you've talked about them being de-evolved. But the doctor actually says that they're they're going forward in evolution and increasing in brain capacity, and and you see just a hint of that where uh, you know when he's in the salamander slash human uh, guise as he goes into the shuttle, he seems perfectly able to um, uh, use the shuttle without any problem at all. And, and uh, so it's interesting then uh, to think about you know whether in fact these salamanders at the end. Are the super evolved state, you know, that's what we're heading to because that's the ultimate expression of, of, of life. I don't know I'd agree with that simply because I've read all the notes under Alpha Fandom's page and there was meant to be a, um, sl a small conversation that talked about that evolution could also be de-evolution, that as we evolved into the future, we may end up going backwards and 
it that was illustrated, but apparently that conversation was taken out of the script. So you don't get that explanation and it doesn't make sense why they end up as a pair of rather placid salamanders. But let's just go with Lindsay's point here for a moment that they have evolved into this super intelligent, um, uh, uh, ultra, ultra adapted creature. They have now committed, I think, um, biological vandalism and violated the prime directive in the most obscene way by actually leaving three members of this super-evolved, super-intelligent race in the, the uh, Delta Quadrant on a little planet. I, I, I fear for the future. Imagine coming back and they've they've taken over the planet, they've taken over the sector. There's now this this major problem that they've actually created. And, and I think that's it is one of those environmental butterfly effect things we have to think about, that when we, we brought in the cane toad to Australia, we said, oh, this will fix our our problems and created a new one. And, and when we brought in the cactoblaster to take out the uh, the prickly pear, we did the same thing, that, that this whole idea of introducing biological components to ecosystems is actually a very dangerous thing. Well, I'd just like to point out, Will, that these super-evolved salamanders are... are are, you know, presumably super evolved in their morality as well. So maybe they won't be yeah, taking over the system and doing all sorts of terrible things. You might come back and discover that it's a paradise ruled over by the super intelligent salamanders. And of course, you know, we laugh at that, but who is it to say that human form is necessarily the form that the most intelligent life will take? After all, Douglas Adams very famously had multidimensional mice who were in charge of everything. Just about all of the experimentation in eugenics and the improvement of humanity has resulted in um, a super evil race like Khan and 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 so on and so on. So so the 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 Star Trek universe itself warns against tampering with the natural evolution of um of of uh, of of the human species because as we intensify our intellect and our power we also attempt uh, seem to intensify our, our corruption and our want to be able to dominate master and enslave well i have to what admit while i was watching this episode even in spite of what the doctor said about going through this fast evolutionary process i thought they were de-evolving because it just seemed to me it was turning into what climb crawled out of the primordial slime rather than into some super intelligent super being of the future i I thought it was going backwards and when i read the paragraph about this conversation being taken out that made much more sense to me so yep the Great thing is that as uh, good Christians, we don't have to worry about any of this stuff because we all know that evolution is actually not something that actually occurs at all and that that God made everything in seven days, one after the other. So we don't have to worry about this because we can just kind of go, oh, look, that's just complete fantasy, part of the science fiction trope and, uh, and, and discard it. Well, and if you want to go down that kind of uh, approach, we know as good Christians also that human beings are the pinnacle and the centre of everything and we can disregard all other forms of life as being insignificant and not worthy of our attention. We're only here to dominate them and subdue them. You both need to wash your your mouths out with soap, (laughs) suggesting such things. You may just mislead some of our listeners and I think that's very unfair of you. 
I'm sure our listeners are, <laughs> are uh, quite able to tell our uh, sarcasm at play here. Yes. But I, I, I do think seriously that there is a problem with uh, our anthropomorphic sort of, um, you know, uh, fixation. And, and you know, I, I, I dread to think what happens when we meet some super evolved species who look like spiders or salamanders or whatever else it is, and, and we want to treat them as somehow being lesser, but in fact, they're uh, more than our equals in every way. You know, I think, I think we're so, so used to thinking that we are the pinnacle that we actually get trapped by that. And uh, if we have the good fortune to meet other beings from other places, they'll probably be entirely different. Well, that's true. And I don't feel that I'm trapped in the idea that I'm the centre of the universe, but just going on, I find it hard to believe that biologically a salamander can actually have a brain big enough to do the sort of super intelligent things that you're kind of hinting at there, Lindsay. <laughs> I think it might be difficult. I, I, I think once again, though, it, we, it opens that question of what it means to be made in the image of God. So we, we do get caught up in the physical. We say, well, a brain is the only place where intelligence could be. But there are there are other creatures whose brains are their entire spinal column. Um, we, we know that trees, for example, make decisions and actually hold information uh, and even trauma, but we can't find any kind of nervous system or brain inside the tree. So they're, they're, I, I guess we've got to be careful that we don't discount um, forms um, that don't fit our understanding of, of, of how things work together. I guess it's partly because it's contextual and you can have creatures who think with their spines or like trees and, you know, who are, and whole forests talk to each other and they're connected by networks of fungi beneath the soil and they do make decisions, but it's highly contextual. I guess what's different about the human creature, it has the ability to range across a whole range of contexts and deal with them in a way that is um, difficult for a tree that's rooted to the spot. That's not to say the tree isn't intelligent, but it's highly focused and highly contextual. And we can be that way, but we've also got a much broader platform, I guess, on which to range around on. So just uh, coming back to the original sort of motivation for the whole uh, episode, you know, this uh, desire to move at uh, Warp 10, I I found this part of the uh, issue for me with believability was that we're led to believe that somehow, you know, uh, Warp 9, Warp 9.5, Warp 9.95, etc., uh, are still... Um, speeds which are so slow that it's going to take them at maximum warp, you know, 70 years to get back to where they are. But somehow you you flip onto warp 10 and that's sun, suddenly infinite speed uh, and you're going to be everywhere in the universe at the same time. It just seemed to me to to not match the kind of scale uh, that, that previous warp numbers have, have uh, kind of set up for us. I'm sorry, um, Lindsay, but if you have a look at the table um, that is on um, the fandom site of of the previous warp numbers, um, it seems to demonstrate that there is absolutely no consistency between the different factors and how far they can take us at different times. That throughout the Star Trek episodes in the motion picture, in uh, Enterprise and Voyager and Deep Space Nine and Discovery, 
um, that the next generation that there is there is no consistency. It seems to take. 20 minutes to travel somewhere at warp nine, uh, but then um, we can get somewhere in five minutes that's the same distance at warp three. So the whole warp thing is a bit warped as far as I'm concerned. I saw it as a dimensional thing. I thought that once they'd broken warp 10, the way it is described, they've actually entered the fourth dimension, which is time out of the third dimension, because if you can't be everywhere at once and see everything at once, um, unless you've actually crossed a barrier into that time dimension. So I assumed it was what we call a just noticeable difference in psychology. So 9.95 is just at the edge of the barrier, but you need 10 to actually break through the barrier. Yes, I don't know. It, it sounds like technobabble to me. And of course, you know, course I, I, I hate technobabble, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably is technobabble, but that's how I tried to understand it. And of course, you end up with Tom Paris sitting there being omniscient. And I had some grave concerns about an omniscient Tom Paris. I really did. Well, Maybe that's how think, we fix him. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, thought that, you know, the whole idea that somehow cellular mutation would be the result of uh, undergoing this particular uh, breaking this barrier just didn't seem quite to fit to me. I mean, I think, you know, in some other properties when people have this kind of thing, they have mental problems, you know, because they can't cope with all the information or or they find themselves somehow out of phase with with the 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 normal environment and that makes much more sense uh, as a result of this sort of temporal uh, displacement or breaking of a barrier than that you're suddenly going to go through some weird kind of evolution or de-evolution process. And and I agree with you, you know, Tom Paris doesn't show any signs of, of being omniscient in the sense of being able to integrate anything. He just says, oh, wow, it was really cool, you know, like a, a drug trip, you know, I was one yeah. with everything. And I could see everything. I could see, you know, back in our own quadrant. I could see my home. I could see you. And I came back because you were looking for me. Yes, his use of omniscience is rather poor, I agree. <laughs> I did wonder, though, um, when we think about omniscience, it's an easy word to throw around, uh, although not that easy because it's not that easy to say. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, there's a lot contained in that word. That word. Um, when we talk about omniscience, omnipotence uh, and omnipresence, you know, this little omni we throw in front of these things actually says, oh, well, this is now everything. And I, I found myself exploring that sort of 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. That word fully really is that omni kind of word in there, and it blows it blows my mind. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a weird idea omniscience and in fact, you know, it's interesting that uh, some forms of theology uh, of late have explored whether in fact omniscience as uh, we have seen it traditionally is a quality that we should or shouldn't ascribe to God, uh, who's usually who we're talking about when we talk about these omni things. Uh, so that you know, I think uh, a traditional view has seen uh, as Elizabeth said, God as being outside of time uh, in the same way that you might argue Paris and, and Janeway are, um, and, and therefore 
God can be aware of everything because there's no limitation of one thing happening after the other. Um, but but some uh, theology more recently has explored the idea that actually the future is not pre-written. It, it's genuinely open. It's shaped by our choices and, and the things that we do um, and random events. Um, and as a result, uh, that God can't have the capacity to know things which are not yet knowable because they're not yet fixed. Uh, God might be uh, the most able to predict, uh, much more so than, than we are able to predict the future, but uh, it's still a genuinely open future. And so that's an interesting take on this whole omniscience thing. Yeah, it is. And I think it's... Um... It's a, a newer concept by, what I mean by newer, it's not an Old Testament concept and it's not even really a first century concept in some ways um, towards God because nobody believed God was watching you or wanting to know about you all of the time, which is what we seem to understand this word to mean. I mean, Peter, when he responds to Jesus running up and saying, follow me in the Gospel of Luke, after the uh, miraculous catch of fish, I mean, you actually have him having um, a fear fit because he says to Jesus, go away, I'm a sinful man. And mm. that is a response to a holy man because the eye of God is always on a holy man, you see. So Peter knows that Jesus hoving up as a holy man is going to bring the eye of God with him and conceivably look at Peter. And Peter's not happy about this because he's done sins or he's done whatever he's done. So it seems to me that it's it's sort of a post-biblical concept that we've developed over time. Yeah, definitely, and and I I think um there's a sense in which when we're we're, we're thinking about this stuff, it's really um easy for us to just grab one part of it because that's all we can really do without actually trying to make sense of 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 the whole. Um, and you know, looking at um. Uh, that that concept of of knowing everything, being one with everything, is just so far beyond our our understanding that that you know we can't I, I can't imagine uh, what it would be like to be able to see every iteration, every possibility, every future, present and past, all at the same time. Well, and you've made an interesting conflation there, Will, because I think that your, your comment, um, knowing everything and being one with everything, they're actually two slightly different concepts, mm. I think. And and I think um, some people and certainly some forms of uh, Eastern philosophy and religion would argue that we are all one with everything, that that, that there is a continuity uh, of the whole of the, the created order. Um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean I can know it all. Uh, so my capacity to know uh, everything is limited, but I may yet be connected with everything. I think that's right. I was teaching um, Song of Songs last night to our online Bible class, and one of the things we we're looking at is the concept of the Hebrew nephesh, um, because Hebrews don't have the Greek dichotomy of a body as a container with a separate soul in it. Um, the Greek, uh, the Hebrew idea of nephesh, you're a living being and it's all intertwined and intermeshed. They're not separate. And God breathes the spirit into you, his breath or the spirit into you, and that animates you. And when it's withdrawn, you die. So 
the idea that we're connected by God's spirit as these living beings named as nephesh in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I mean, I think that has great attraction to me um, in terms of being not only animated by God and having that connection with God, but that animation actually connects you with everything else. There's a bit of a bounce back in talking about this topic. A lot of the time um, when, when conversations like this start, we, we kind of hit the complexity of it and then we kind of go, oh, look, you know, but who knows anyway and, and, and move away. And so it's, it's always an unfinished conversation. Um, and I found it absolutely fascinating that we've we've transdimensionally crossed over into one of the other podcasts of not never odd or even in this conversation. Um, for those who have been following the Loki podcast, you'll you'll know that this whole idea of prediction and predestination, variants of ourselves, multifaceted universes, um, are, are all tied up in the uh, the MCU's uh, Loki series that's been on uh and if you want to hear more about that then you can cross over to that uh and uh, have a listen to darren and michelle and myself have a chat about the uh the complexities of 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 what happens when we try to cross the time barrier um it's a bit like the sound barrier isn't it we we thought oh they can never do that person can't sustain it and then um then at the moment we say well we can't travel faster than light but you know star trek manages to do that with zephram cochran's engine later on um and now we've we need a new barrier it's like no matter how far we push no matter what we think the final frontier is there's always something beyond yes and uh, i think one of the interesting things that you know often comes up and i'm sure we've mentioned it before is that we, we look at these barriers out there, but often the final frontier is actually the one inside us. And, and, and I think uh, um, a really fruitful exploration of this episode is when, you know, you leave aside all the plot holes and whatever and, and say, well, what's happening for Tom Paris? What is the, what is the trajectory of Tom Paris, not the shuttle? Um, and and I think there's an interesting thing here where he explores this idea that he has to be special in in order to to vindicate himself. He has to somehow do something memorable. And uh, at the end, uh, even when he's done this memorable thing, which admittedly didn't turn out the way anyone thought, but uh, Janeway says, "But you you've done it." Um, and, and he makes the comment, somehow it doesn't mean as much as I thought it would. And I think he's coming to a realisation that there is no quick fix to, uh, you know, uh, gaining a sense of your own worth or, or vindicating yourself in the eyes of some, uh, you know, father figure or other authority figure that you're trying to um, prove yourself to, that, that it's actually the hard work of everyday stuff. Uh, that enables that rather than uh, coming up with some stunning, uh, you know, thing that you do that no one else has done. I agree with that, Lindsay, and I thought that was one of the redeeming moments of the episode because it's clear that Tom Paris has started to really self-reflect on why he had that need to be special on why he had that need to do this new thing. And he, he sort of talks about the barriers in himself that he needs to look at. Um, exploring. I'm not sure he uses that that wording, but that seems to be what he's implying. And though I did find it was a very complicated and unnecessary way of getting Paris to evolve 
internally and mentally and emotionally. Surely they could have found something else other than turning him into a catfish. I mean, anyway. And maybe it added a touch of humility that he needed or something. <laughs> he's oh. got this he's got this picture of himself as a giant salamander till the end of time. I thought there was a bit of a, a shout-out to um, Ken Mattingly who um, didn't um, go into space because he came close to the German measles in the midst of that. I need to be – I need to do this. I was born to do this. And then all of a sudden they discover what an, an enzyme imbalance in his brain that might cause him to have an um, um, a, a, a embolism. Um, and so he can't go. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that was quite a good little historical shout-out there too. But uh, Janeway is a lot more understanding than NASA in that case. You know, she yes. kind of ums and ahs and thinks, oh, all right, only 2% chance of you dying. Who cares, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I think she feels that if that's what he really wants to do and it's only 2%, then, you know, he should go ahead. Though Harry Kim as a giant catfish could have been interesting. We, we we miss this chance, I feel. Harry Kim and the captain could have been interesting too. Um, no. Oh, God, no. Ha- I think Har- Harry, Harry Kim- might have kidnapped someone else. He uh, may have. He may have taken off one with Valana. One of the Laney sisters or something. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Paris was the one interested in them. I still reckon he went for the alpha female because that's what you do when you're looking to mate as a, something like a catfish or a salamander. Um, yeah. But how does Janeway actually look her crew in the eye again, <laughs> having mated with Paris as a giant salamander or catfish? How does she actually carry that off? Well, luckily, Elizabeth, uh, it, it won't cross the episode barrier, <laughs> so she'll Good. be able to pretend that it never happened. <laughs> well, I know I'm- that I know that when I've been in similar situations. Um, I've had to do a lot of reflection and introspection in order to be able to work through and and just make sure that no one ever speaks of this thing again. I think that's probably... <laughs> and that other... And, of course, the other little side of this is that sneaky little shithead, whatever his name is. Um, I can't think of it. Um, Jonas, yes. Jonas, yes. Jonas is reporting this whole thing to his Kazon contact. For what ends, who knows? She's secretly a catfish. We can use that against her later on. (laughs) (laughs) Because what's he hoping to gain? Does he want to go join him? Well, just transport yourself to where Seska is if that's what you want. What are you looking to do, dude? I think it's above his pay grade. I think he's just kind of, you know, at the point of of, uh, insidious minion. Uh, I don't think he actually has aspirations of being any more than that. Um, And um, I, I think... You know the 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 real mastermind here is is Seska, so they're using this kind of trope that says that there are people who who rise to the level of their own incompetence. Um, that he he'll never be more than just a snitch. But it, but it was a bit of bad writing, I think. You know, because it, it really had nothing to do with this episode. I mean, no. you know, he could have been reporting anything at all, and it. it it added nothing and it, it, it made no difference to what happened in this episode. It was purely the writers went, oh, we're meant to be running this idea of, of you know, the uh, plot and Seska and whatever. We better throw in a scene with that. 
You'd I'd... be better off to have been sneaking one of Neelix's recipes for Leola Eat Stew, I think, maybe across to the Kazon <laughs> ship. Look, I want to be told that the Kazon are actually all going to try and put their ships through warp 10 and are all going to turn into catfish. <laughs> if this is the result of him snitching, I could live with that very happily. Catfish colour. <laughs> Finally, he might actually be able to attract the attention of the captain um, and, um, and, and, and have the relationship of, that he wants with her. And because he's speechless as a salamander, as far as we can work out, I think this would be a very good way forward. <laughs> Unless he's telepathic and then he'd be able to insert his vile, vulgar thoughts straight into other people's brains as he walks past them. We have no indication the salamanders were telepathic. <laughs> Well, we have no indication of, of anything about them, really. <laughs> well, they didn't fight back. They didn't sort of send out thought vibes when the crew of Voyager approached. They just lay there pathetically and let themselves get stunned. So I'm going to assume they're lacking the abilities you are suggesting. Oh, dear. That's no good at all. Well, I think it's just deduction. That's what it appeared. What well, an awful episode. It's interesting that the thing that, that um, begins all this is that they discover a, a, a different version of dilithium uh, and, and it's got more, you know, superpowers so they, they can use it to go faster and faster. Um, and it, it reminds me a bit of our um, search after uh, usable nuclear um Fusion as a as a a, um, a way of uh, creating uh, you know power, uh, and I think there was a, a breakthrough in the last week or so that you know had people uh, gasping and saying you know we're almost there, we're almost to the free energy future. Except that even with the breakthrough, they still needed to put more energy into the thing that they got out of it. Well, that's a bit of a, a I would say a a setback or drawback or a disadvantage, is it not, if you've got to create a lot more energy to create less energy? It's definitely a drawback if you're trying to create energy. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Lindsay, that we're celebrating this. Swift. We found a new way to make energy, but it actually is going to cost us twice as much as what it did before. But then again, prototypes often are inefficient. Um, and so you make a breakthrough, you work out how to do something, and then you work on how, how to make it more efficient afterwards. Uh, that, that, that is part of the scientific discovery process. So probably we shouldn't write it off entirely. No, we shouldn't. And a lot of the stuff we use is actually inefficient if you want to use percentages like wind turbines. Or um, cars, you know, they're actually, when you look at the percentage of their efficiency to make them run, it's a lot less than what you're actually doing to create them and put into them. Well, that's my understanding anyway, when I've read mm. about these things. I did enjoy the scientific process, though, um, of going to the kitchen and asking Neelix, because, you know, I think that that's, that's a good idea. And I think that <laughs> should the crew of Voyager have any problems from this point onwards, they should go to... Uh, Neelix, get them to get him to tell a story about how he was trying to do something, and then they'll be able to go. Oh, of course, we can do it this way. What was interesting in that was that I love that. In in all seriousness, to actually um, solve their problem, they inverted it. So they were saying, "Oh, we're having a problem with the nacelles being ripped off the shuttle," and then they went, "Hang on, maybe it's the shuttle being ripped off the nacelles." And just that inversion of thinking meant that they were able to come up with a solution. And I, I think that often in our own 
um, lives, we, we we might be trying to solve a particular problem and we get stuck in a particular way things work. But if we can reverse them or turn them upside down or turn them inside out, then we can find an, another way of being able to understand our situation and maybe a, a new solution to get through it. I think that's think we'd call that lateral thinking in some ways. And I don't know that we're very good at it, particularly as the church anymore. We get very set as human beings in the way we do stuff. We easily fall into habits and we're comforted by familiarity and patterns. So to apply that inversion or a different lens or something more creative to what we're doing and trying to look at it differently, it's it's very difficult for many of us to actually be able to do that well. And and I think that's exactly where having uh, another voice like Neelix in this particular case comes in because someone's retelling or mirroring of what you're you're saying, um, you know, just puts things in a slightly different light and and gives you the trigger for that lateral thinking. And I must admit, I'm not a huge Neelix fan, but I did think they were being a bit mean to him and a bit patronising to assume that he had nothing. Uh, to offer it in a conversation. Uh, and as it turned out, whether he meant it or not, um, you know, he, he did. But it, it was, yeah, it was just a bit mean the way they were sort of um, saying, oh, well, you wouldn't understand. Yeah, I thought they were patronising. And I thought Neelix was rightly, you know, offended by it and said, well, hang on a minute, I've done this and this is what happened. I mean, he's not trained as an engineer, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have any life experience or any experience in these sorts of things they're talking about. And as we realised at the end of it, he could make a tell a story that made a suggestion they hadn't thought of. So sometimes solutions lie in surprising places. And if you're not open to that, then you won't find them. And while we're talking about, uh, you know, this aspect of the the scientific breakthrough and, and whatever, I was very, very pleased that, you know, Janeway, um, you know, said the same kind of thing I've said in episodes in the past. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We've just got to proceed with caution and try and, you know, work out what we can do with this new discovery. Yep. And poke our nose into things that we're just going to keep on doing and get ourselves into all sorts of trouble and especially her. How does she live with herself, having been turned into a salamander catfish and mating with Paris? God. I can't believe that you're being so anti-salamander. I mean, if we can learn from Neelix's homespun yarns, why can't we learn from our experience of being turned into a salamander and back? Oh. Would we have been happier if it was Chakotay and uh, the captain who had slipped off for a little bit of swapland milking? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean... Paris has always had a thing about Kess and it wasn't that many episodes ago that he was um, saying that he was in love with Kess and I think he was telling Harry Kim that, wasn't he? And, but he kidnaps the captain. Well, but he, he did ask to... Kess for a, a kiss as, you know, his dying wish he wanted her to kiss him or something and and uh, and she couldn't because of the gas, but then she did once she thought he was dead. Uh, and that was an interesting little uh, scene as well. Not only the fact that Kess did, uh, you know, go and kiss him, but then when when they were both coming to terms with the fact that Paris seemed to be dead, we had a, another one of those reach out but then uh, pull back at the last minute where the, the, the uh, doctor was going to put his hand uh, on Kess's shoulder but then pulled it back. And, and you wonder what's going on with all these emotionally deprived Voyager crewmates that can't even touch one another's shoulders. Well, he is a holograph. I mean, maybe he's just having trouble overcoming his programming. 
<laughs> I don't know. I found that whole um, give me a kiss thing very awkward, um, and um, I, I kind of it 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 just played into a, a whole lot of uh, gender and sexual stereotypes of the of that 90s period. It really gave us a bit of an archaeological sense of this idea that, that you know um, I, there were lots of things he could have could have asked for, but um, you know this this just kind of it was just a little bit, I don't know, icky. Possibly. I, I mean, for me, I think, you know, uh, the the best way you can see it is that it's, again, um, uh, evidence of Tom Paris's seeking vindication, seeking worthiness, and, and the idea that, you know, if if Kess could, could see him as someone worthy, that that would bring some fulfilment to him in the same way that he's seeking to be seen as worthy in the eyes of uh, his father or in my interpretation at least in the eyes of the captain you know all 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 of this is about that hole within Tom Paris that he doesn't and I think he actually says this at the end that he doesn't um, like himself he doesn't love himself and and mm. so he's always seeking love from other other figures uh, that will somehow fill that hole. I think that's right. And I think he's, if the writers pick it up, seems to be about to embark on a journey of self-reflection and um, discernment, which I think can only be good for Paris because he, it is clear he has this hole in him and it is clear he's been influenced negatively in many ways by authoritarian figures like his father and this belief that he's never been good enough. But at least in in his evolving form, he does have two hearts, which is, you know, yet another shout-out to Doctor Who. I think this is about the second or third time there's been someone with two hearts in Voyager as I look back on what we've seen so far. Now, Brandon Bragger, who did write this episode, um, is quoted as saying, it's a terrible episode and people are very unforgiving about that episode. He says, I've written well over 100 episodes of Star Trek and it seems to be the only episode anyone ever brings up. Um, so I'm pretty sure that uh, as writers go, Brandon's uh, trying really hard not to remember this episode and never to bring any part of it in there again. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's if, if you... I guess there's something in this episode of when uh, we're only as good as our last piece or our worst piece. Um, yes. Yeah, we, we get remembered for, for 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 we can be remembered for what went wrong for a very long time. Um, I'm sure that he wrote if he wrote over a hundred episodes, he's probably written a whole bunch of them that we've really enjoyed and that we've spoken highly about. Oh, absolutely. I think Brandon Braga has written some of the best episodes of, of Voyager. Uh, that that will come up to and and of course he's also one of the showrunners so one of the people who um actually shaped the whole uh, uh, Voyager so um uh, you know props props to Brennan Braga I say who who cares if occasionally you throw out a bit of a dud and and it's interesting I I, I joked with you on the um on our our uh, little uh, messenger feed. Uh, before we, today's podcast that I was forcing my wife and my mother-in-law to watch this one with me. Um, but the truth is, while no one thought it was a great episode of, of Voyager, it was still a pleasant way to to pass, you know, 40 minutes uh, of time. It was still, you know, had had characters that you liked doing things that you thought were interesting. Uh, there was some humour in it. And, uh, you know, I, I even at its worst, uh, a Voyager episode is still something that you can enjoy, I think. 
Oh, I'm not sure about that, Lindsay. I agree with there was bits of humour in it. I thought one of my favourites is when um, Paris says he lost his virginity at 17 and the doctor says he'll note it in his medical file. <laughs> <laughs> I did think that was pretty good. And there was a few other one-liners like that. You can always rely on the doctor to come up with something. But on the whole, I feel this is 45 minutes of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> <laughs> at, at the um, stage we've mentioned where um, uh, Paris is told that uh, maybe he shouldn't go on this uh, trip because of there's a 2% chance that he might have some brain aneurysm or whatever it is, uh, the thing that struck me was um, th- that this is an example of, of risk understanding and analysis that in our current setting, we're discovering that we're very bad at as humans. We're, we're very bad at working out what are the risks of different types of behaviours and does it matter if I wear a mask, if it you know doesn't provide 100% uh, certainty of resistance, but you know it provides 80% coverage or whatever it is. We're not good at working with statistics and probabilities and actually working out uh, these sort of risk things. We want to be given a very black and white it's okay, or no, don't do it, and 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 we we don't deal well with uh, you know having to weigh the consequences ourselves. I find that surprising, I have to say, because to me, if a mask gives me say a three layer mask with a filter, which is what I wear, a cloth one, and it gives me probably eighty percent or more coverage um, or protection, I'm good with that. It's much better than naught percent, and I don't get why people don't understand why naught percent is not to be preferred to eighty percent. There's some anecdotal evidence um, in sociological circles that when people are wearing masks, they're actually more conscious of social distance. Um, they're um, more likely to use um, check-ins. They're more likely mm. to sanitize their hands. So there's a psychological benefit to wearing a mask as well. But I, I get what you're saying, Lindsay, and I think part of the reason for that is because we're bombarded and overwhelmed with statistics. Um, and you can actually take the mean of one set of statistics and the median of another set of statistics and you can make them actually tell an opposite story. Well, that's because you don't understand the difference between mean and median. That's all it is. It's not that they're telling an opposite story. It's just they're different measures and people have to understand that they're different measures. Yeah, but I think the point Will's making is is that those who... um, either understand it and do it for their own benefit or who don't understand it do tell different stories based on their misunderstandings of these different measures. Um, and intentional misunderstanding sometimes. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I actually had a, a great little book um, that uh, I I think probably came out in the 70s or maybe even late 60s, uh, but it was called How to Lie with Statistics, um, and it actually went through all the different ways that you can use statistics to mislead. I mean, the author was obviously hoping that people would learn from that and be able to see through these uh, uh, misleading things. But uh, uh, he he sort of put it as, you know, this is how you can lie with statistics. And, and there were so many different ways uh, to use statistics to tell a story that isn't, in fact, the, the, the best understood story. And the big problem is if you present statistics confidently, then you can miss the fact that 97.345% of (laughs) statistics are made up on the spot. Um, And, uh, you know, as long as you're actually able to present it confidently and actually make it sound official, you can actually mislead people significantly with with 
real statistics imp- interpreted in a spurious way. Well, that's the whole thing. Statistics themselves, if they're presented correctly and people understand what they're actually measuring, can be quite useful and quite helpful and quite accurate. But if you take it and you use an average to describe something when you should be using a median or you use causal, you attribute cause to something when it might be just sitting alongside something else, of course you can do that. But you've either got to be ignorant or malevolent in some ways if that's what you're doing. Because, I mean, I studied statistics for three years at university and to the surprise of everyone, I actually passed my third year with a credit. And I always liked them. And I always liked the way that they could actually give certain information. But it's in done, it's understanding their limitations and their um, what their purpose is, I think, is really important. And you're right, people do bandy them around at random. You can also use them as a source of entertainment. Um, when I was studying statistics as part of my sociology study, um, I came across Tyler Virgin's website. If you want to go to tylervirgin.com, uh, I'll put a link in there. Um, uh, he, he provides a great deal of entertaining spurious correlations, such as films Nicolas, Nicolas Cage appeared in against the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool. And when you line <laughs> the statistics up on a graph, they actually do uh, to do come come to pass. Per capita cheese consumption and a number of people who died become, by becoming entangled in their bed sheets is another one. Um, and yes, my most favourite one of all is is uh, the uh, the effects of global warming and the reduction of pirates in the world. Um, so a, a, a solution to global warming would be to increase the level of piracy that's taking place. I think that um, he's playing with causal relationships there that aren't causal. Mm, that's right. Spurious correlations. That's right. Um, but very entertaining, no less. So uh, have a look at those uh, if you've got a, a spare moment. You need some cheering up during your lockdown. Yes, indeed. Ah, <clears throat> well, maybe we've been left speechless um, <laughs> after this episode. There was one other thing I wanted to cover. Um, it's it's a it's a flaw, I guess, in another direction. Since we're spending our time talking about flaws. Um, this is the fifth time that the Voyager crew has had a silver bullet way of getting home. Um, warp 10 represents the fifth time. Um, the, the, you'll remember the Eye of the Needle where they found the little wormhole and then there was the 37s where they, they thought they could go, the Cold Fire where they found the other um, caretaker uh, and the other one was Prime Factors but I can't remember exactly what that one was but there were five five opportunities and this is where Voyager becomes a bit like Gilligan's Island. Uh, some yep. of you may have seen the Gilligan's Island clip that I put up on Never Order Even's Facebook page uh, earlier this week. Um, everyone can get onto the island, but no one can get off. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're in season two. We know there's going to be at least four seasons. We hope there's going to be seven. Um, and there's a sense in which they, 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 they're going to tease or dangle these, oh, we can get home all at once kind of op- options for us. But, but we know at the beginning that this is going to fail because this is not the end of the story. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame that, you know, the, uh, they can't just go through the shuttle sensors, which apparently recorded everything about everything. And, you know, surely in there somewhere there'd be some wormhole or something that would get them home. You know, I, I don't, that's another one that didn't make it through the episode barrier, I think, to uh, have any effect anywhere else. Well, maybe the Kazon will, seeing that Jonas has very thoughtfully sent it all to them. 
perhaps they'll come up with the uh, answer for you, Lindsay. Yes, and they'd probably like to get rid of Voyager as long as they could have their replicators on the way out. Uh, replicators and transporters. <laughs> but then again, if they're all catfish, they may not need these things. Well, interestingly, of course, uh, and I'm going into a science thing here, uh, I, I think that the transporters and the replicators are actually uh, different forms of the same technology because they're they're a, a, a machine that has the ability to put together component uh, atoms or whatever uh, into whatever you want. And in one case with the transporter, it's putting them together into the uh, the, the uh, shape and uh, mind and whatever of Elizabeth Rain. Uh, and in the case of the uh, replicator, it's putting the atoms together in the shape of a cup of uh, Earl Grey tea, hot. Uh, so yeah. it's it's the same technology that they use for both of those things, uh, but in slightly different ways. And it's why pattern buffers are important in both transporting and replicating. I'll take your word for it, Lindsay. <laughs> I'm not really up on the science of Star Trek, I have to say. I, I also have to say, unfortunately for this episode, um, some of the things around this episode have called me to question the validity of science and, and even the peer-reviewed scientific papers because in 2018, an anonymous contributor named BioTreki submitted a false fake science paper called Rapid Genetic and Developmental Morphological Change Following Extreme Celerity and described Paris's experiments in their own words um, providing information, and it was accepted and published in a scientific journal. I can't um, so that. there, there is a sense in which uh, we have to be a little bit careful because, um, uh, with with the right words and the right numbers, we can actually make an argument for anything, can't we? We can. I I was always uh, delighted by uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, who was of course a great science fiction writer, but was also a, a person with a doctorate in biochemistry. And he he began his science fiction writing before he attained his doctorate. And uh, the the story is that he was a little worried that he wouldn't be able to replicate the turgid style that was required, you know, to write <laughs> his thesis for his biochemistry doctorate, and so. He wrote one uh, science fiction piece uh, called The Endochronic Properties of Resublimated Theotomaline. And, and he wrote this whole piece in sort of scientific sort of turgid language. But the idea of it was that there was this substance that uh, the more you purified it, the quicker it reacted with uh, some other substance. And if you got it to a certain level of purification, it would actually cross the barrier and it would start to react before you put it with the other substance so <laughs> that it could see into the future when it was going to be added to the other substance and react beforehand. So right. a bit like covering your face before a car accident, yeah? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, our, uh, our, our listeners can't see at home, but um, here on recording day, the 27th of August is Wear It Purple Day, and I am wearing my purple. Um, I, I, I did want to just uh, give a shout-out to all those who um, are, are – working really hard to um, create safe spaces for and increase the visibility of LGBTQI plus people um, in, in our society. Um, and um, if you've got a chance to, to put on some purple, even if it's not wear it purple day, um, then it's actually a, a really good way to, to demonstrate to those around you that you want to create such safe spaces. 
um, for for our friends um, who sometimes actually will many, many times feel very unsafe in a world that doesn't respect or understand them. That's right. And I'll give a shout out now to my congregation at Tuggeranong Uniting. And monthly we have a Rainbow Alliance, Christian Rainbow Alliance congregation that meets that is a very safe space for all LGBTQI people. And um, it's growing. We've got quite a number of people attending and um, often they're from more conservative streams of Christianity and they've found that they're welcome and accepted in this congregation. So that's been really good. Mm, Very important work. And if you're not in Canberra and you're looking for a place like that, then get in touch with us, send us a message. Um, I'm very happy to take the time and do some research and see where the safe spaces are around you. So uh, let us know um, where you're at um, because um, I think one of the things that's most important um, is is that people feel that they can be a part of community and, and be safe. And, and look, for all of our delete Tom Paris, uh, our, 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 our words about Tom Paris in the past, one of the things that is shown through this episode is that the crew bounds to, bands together to actually make um, Tom as safe as he possibly can be to care for him and to provide him with a, a way forward. And even the way in which the the captain and Tom have this kind of, um, I don't know, coy, awkward conversation at the end is actually about trying to reestablish um, the Voyager as a safe place for both of them as they move forward. Because um, sometimes awkward things happen and weird things happen um, and, and strong communities, safe communities, talk about them, work out how to go forward um, and, and and allow everyone to be able to do so with, uh, with dignity. And I think that that's one of the things, and I know that you've talked over some of this sort of stuff with uh, uh, our uh, super fan, Michelle Kaufman, but it's, it's one of the things that fandom actually um, provides for is that it, it generally is a safe place provided you are committed to whatever the fandom is about, you know, so yeah. don't, don't talk to me about Star Wars if you're in a Star Trek club, uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female or whatever, if you share that love, that's one of the things I enjoy about these kinds of communities is that, that we band together around uh, a, a particular thing that we care deeply about uh, and it, it doesn't matter what sort of person you are, what sort of background or experience you have, uh, you share that love for whatever the, the shared thing is. I think that's, um, we'd say that the total is greater than the sum of the parts because those communities end up doing far more than just share the love of whatever it is that's brought them together. They end up sharing the love with each other and they become very supportive and safe spaces for the people that are in them. So I think that's a really good thing. And and that's really what we're aiming for with Never Odd or Even, isn't it? That it would be a community where people would be safe and would um, uh, come together around that shared love for uh, fictional uh, ways of thinking and uh, the wonderful philosophical and theological ideas that can come out of fiction. Mm. So as we draw to a close today, I just wanted to make reference. Uh, I did talk about the Loki podcast. Uh, that's now in its second week, uh, and uh, it'll go for six episodes just like Loki. Uh, keep your eye out at the end of that for the special bonus episode that uh, only Patreons have seen so far. Sorry, seen and heard so far. Um, after that, the plan is, and I've been assembling a team of, uh, of, of uh, experts 
and fans uh, and and nerds uh, for the WandaVision podcast that we'll be doing. And uh, it'll be particularly interesting. It's nine episodes covering um, the concepts of grief and loss uh, and how we might um, rebuild our world when it's been shattered. Uh, and uh, the WandaVision series that came out really covers this. So we'll be having uh, Julie McDonald from the Bethel Centre um, bringing her skills um, as a psychologist um, and counsellor uh, and Sandy Brodine, a minister of the Uniting Church in Melbourne um, with uh, years of experience of working with people um, through difficult times of grief. Um, so I'm looking forward to that um, and uh, that'll start to go into production in the next couple of weeks. So lots of really exciting things happening in the Never Odd or Even space uh, for you to tune into um, and and enjoy. Well, I think that brings us to the end. Uh, we've managed to get through this uh, appallingly <laughs> abysmally written writing um, of of this uh, this episode. Um, we never have to come back here again. Thank goodness for that. Oh, I don't know, you cynics. Giant salamanders for the win. <laughs> I don't think so. And if their offspring pop up somewhere, no, just no. Unless the Kazan all turn into them, in which case I could live with it. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll see the, uh, the, the new race of salamanderoids petitioning to enter into Starfleet, claiming their heritage from Admiral Paris and Captain Janeway as a reason why they should be accepted. But... This is not that day. No, um, this they is, don't this even is... have opposable thumbs, Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been the uh, Voyager Theological Podcast, and I'm I'm reasonably sure I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to say, except I don't remember very much about... You know. Apology accepted. Thank you, Captain. I guess this whole experience has left me feeling a little overwhelmed. Huh? My reputation. 